Snap Studios. Each day, people step inside prison walls, not to serve a sentence, but to do a job. Correctional officers promise to hold each other accountable, and they're promised a new family. This is a story about two men who defied the unwritten code that binds that brotherhood together and the cost they paid for telling the truth. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's a beautiful Saturday morning, and my father is helping me move boxes from my office at the University of California, Berkeley. And he is not pleased about it. Why are you leaving this? This behind? Wow. It doesn't even make any sense. This is what you said you always wanted. I know they treat you real nice. And my response feels so absurd I can barely say it out loud. Dad, I'm going to, um, I'm going to go and start a radio show. You're going to do what? I'm going to start a radio show. My father puts down the box, looks at me as if I have suddenly sprouted horns. Boy, I don't know what the hell is wrong with you. Today in Snap Judgment, from WNYC, we proudly present Leap of Faith. Leap of Faith. Amazing stories from people who absolutely, positively have to take a big chance. My name is Glenn Washington. The rule is, anyone that helps you move gets to tell you bad things about yourself. Because you're listening. To Snap Judgment. We're going to start off the Leap of Faith episode in one of my favorite places in the world, Japan. But we're not going to stay there for very long. Sensitive listeners and those with small children should know this piece does contain some dark elements. Snap Judgments, Davy Kim has the story. Nahoko Takato is a mean karaoke singer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, sometimes Mariah Carey, I tried. <laughs> it's really difficult, but I love that. And then I like Rolling Hill, Prince. So after Nahoko graduated from college, she started her own karaoke shop called Banana Boat. But you know, when I started my own business, I announced around, I will quit all my job when I will be at age of 30. And I'm going to start my second life as a volunteer. So she did. In 2000, she flew to Calcutta, India, taking just a small suitcase. She knocked on the front door of an orphanage and started her new life as a volunteer. She spent over a year there, then worked with AIDS patients in Thailand and Cambodia, and then her work took her to Baghdad on May 1st, 2003. 
The day President Bush made his mission accomplished speech. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. The United States and our allies have prevailed. Nahoko went to Iraq even though her home country, Japan, specifically warned travelers not to go. She wasn't with any official aid organization. Instead, she called herself a freelance aid worker. Nahoko worked with Iraqis to transport food and medication to hospitals flooded with patients from the battlefield. She traveled back and forth from Baghdad and Fallujah, two of the hottest remaining areas of conflict. The people said you should not go to Fallujah, but I went to Fallujah so many times because I had a good relationship and even... Uh, you can say that I, I had a good uh, friendship with the people in that area, and then they are so supportive, kind, generous. As she went about her work delivering aid and starting a clinic to help Iraqi street children, guerrilla warfare was increasing between U.S. forces and Iraqi insurgents. All this tension came to the forefront at the First Battle of Fallujah, or Operation Vigilant Resolve. So every time, you know, uh, my local partner blood request paper from the doctors. There was a military operation. We need more medication. We need blah, blah, blah. So three of us, two Japanese journalists and me, we got on a taxi and the driver is an Iraqi driver. The plan was to go to Baghdad, prep and package emergency supplies and drive it back to the hospitals in Fallujah, about an hour away. But, you know, on the way to Baghdad, there is a gas station and there's so many cars are waiting to get the fuel, and we are one of them. So uh, on the left side, the left window, and I found one guy. He had a, a big rocket launcher. He was rushing to us. I was surprised, of course, and my heart is so beating so fast. What's happening? What's happening? And then this guy came to our car and talked to my driver. This guy was asking the driver our nationality. Driver said they are Japanese. I was so scared because the local people surrounded our car and they they looked so upset. They are speaking loudly and yelling and liesh, liesh. It means why. He wanted to say why the Japanese government sent the troops to Iraq. Nahoko knew enough Arabic to understand some of what the angry crowd was saying. Japan had sent almost 600 SDF, or self-defense forces, to Iraq. Their mission was strictly for humanitarian aid purposes. But to these locals, the foreigners looked like soldiers. One guy gestured like, you know, you know, like a behead. Finger close the neck. So uh, I was scared. I tried to convince them, no, we are not for the government. I said, la, la, la. La, la means a no in Arabic. No, 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 la, 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 la. And then they forced us to get off the car, and then they took us to uh, another car. I remember we were blindfolded and handcuffs. (laughs) And, of course, I couldn't see, but... They drove us somewhere. They start to investigate us. Are you spying for Japanese troops? No, 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 la, 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 la. 
I told them, please ask the uh, Fallujah Hospital and you can ask the doctor how we are working together. But Fallujah was currently under siege by U.S. forces, and there was no way to reach the doctors that day. They took us to many places, moving, investigation, moving. Nahoko doesn't remember how many times they were relocated, maybe about eight times in 24 hours. Through the thin walls, she could hear the muffled sounds of children playing. So she figured she was being held hostage in someone's house. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I really hate to mention about this experience, but, but somebody came in with a video camera. What 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 what's happening? They forced me to lay down on the floor, and. Uh, <clears throat> There was uh, two Japanese guys besides me. I felt something on the neck. I felt so scared. They asked us, no Koizumi, no Koizumi. Koizumi is the name of our prime minister. They asked me to say louder. No Koizumi, no Koizumi. No Yosei! No Koizumi! No Yosei! I tried to say no Koizumi, but I, I couldn't speak loudly. In this hostage video, Nahoko renounced Japan's Prime Minister Koizumi. Her captors declared that the hostages would be burnt alive unless the Japanese government agreed to withdraw its troops within three days. After a while, Somebody took me up and they said, okay, it's finished. Okay, don't worry, don't worry. Nice again, yeah. But you know, I couldn't understand. I started to regret. I went to Iraq. I started to like hate Iraqi people. I started to hate my captors. Several days went by and Nahoko lost track of time. While we were uh, held hostage, I could hear the sound of air striking, especially the, during the night. Sometimes you know, I felt the uh, shaking. I thought we were also targeted. We ended not only fighters, we ended local families. We were so scared. Nahoko and her two captors and their families didn't know if they would survive these U.S. air raids. It was during these darkest moments that Nahoko and her captors found some common ground. For example, I had uh, many conversations, deep talks with the two captors. They are trying to explain how they killed my baby, my baby, my children. They lost their loved one. And then the fighter was insisting we had a right to revenge and we have to pick up the weapons, we have to fight. So I told them I was understanding how you feeling like that, and uh, I saw the victims, I saw the families who lost their families, they are so sad and angry, and uh, I know, I really understand. But one time they said, you can't understand because you don't have the uh, same experiences. I said, you are accusing U.S. troops 
But you know, you are doing the same to me. Can you imagine my parents, my families having the same feeling as yours? Some fighter was so angry. You are not Muslim, uh, you are speaking English, you must be spy. They started again. So then I answered them, you have two eyes, one nose, one mouth, hands. You know, I have also two eyes, nose, mouth, hands. It's same. We are human, we are same. Why I came to Iraq? Because we are human. I don't need any boundary like borders, religion. He said, I can't find another way. There was no options. There was no choice. He was sitting on the floor and he was holding gun. But, you know, he put his gun on the floor and he turned on me and he said, how can I be your friend? His eyes was wet tears. So I responded, I am your friend. That's why I came to Iraq. So they just kept silence. Next day, the guy who was in tears, he said, we are releasing you. He brought the bottle of honey, really beautiful golden color. So really, you know, special gift in Fallujah. And uh, he handed this bottle of honey to me. We were so astonished because how, how can you imagine that your captor gave you a gift? And he said, this is for your mom and sister. Mom and sister, I was, you know, kind of surprised. And um, I tried to shake hands with him. But you know, he's Muslim, so he covered his hands with the scarves, and then we shake hands. You know, it's a totally, totally horrible experience for me. But when I shake hands with him, this is kind of a beautiful moment for me. It is, this is a piece of hope. Finally, after eight days, Nahoko was flown home to Japan. The U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell praised her for her bravery. Now, since the Japanese media wasn't in the habit of covering Iraq, she expected to walk out to a terminal greeted by family and close friends. But instead, chaos. I heard the sounds, voices, screaming, yelling, calling my name, and then I just felt it's a big wall. It's not a people, it's a wall. It was, I, I was so terrified. Again, More than 150 reporters, security guards, and protesters were scrambling to catch a glimpse of the hostages whose faces and that hostage video had been in the headlines not only in Japan, but all over the world. Now, I was, like, you know, trying to hide. I just put my head down. I didn't see any people. It's a really hard, hard experience at the airport. The protesters were angry with Nahoko for ignoring the government's travel advisory. Going alone as an individual was seen as reckless and unforgivable. Not only that, her kidnapping could have jeopardized Japan's political maneuver. So the individual person 
it's like you know that individual person is、uh, shameful and、uh, breaking the harmony of the groups. In Japanese words, jiko sekinin, jiko sekinin means self responsibility. It's not government responsibility. Nahoko went there, and she got a trouble, and she has to take a responsibility by herself. Yeah, I, I, actually, this is more shocking, more shocking moment for me than my kidnapping in Iraq. Because you know, I could communicate with the people who carry the weapons. We could had a long talk, but you know, in my country, we speak same language. They don't have any weapons. But it's like a no communication. When finally given the chance to address the media, all she could do was bow down in shame, and with her family flanking her sides, she said sorry. I keep apologizing. I'm so sorry. I I believe you felt uncomfortable. After I apologized, I feel like a different person. I couldn't. I I I couldn't be brave person anymore. I believed that I couldn't smile anymore. Nahoko went home and locked herself in. She couldn't check her email or watch TV without being attacked. I felt for the first time I was dead because I was really uncomfortable living in Japan in my own country. I felt like I left my soul in Iraq. My home, my family checked all the letters. There's,、uh, oh my gosh, more than hundreds, and then they separated threats and then support. So then I just saw two. One of them is a postcards, but it was really shocking because I found、uh, not my name. I found my family name on that letter. Punish them. So I was really shocked because you know, okay, I accepted punishment, but you know, not for my family. I got a panic and I cried. Then my mom came to me and then、uh, she slapped me and then go back to Jordan or Iraq wherever and then you need to continue your work. So I was awakened <laughs> and、uh, I. Decided to leave Japan. After four months, Nahoko packed up her belongings and, without telling her family, she moved to Jordan and then Fallujah. Definitely, I wanted to go to cemetery of the victim to make a pray. My friends took me to the cemetery. It was a soccer yard. It's like a one thousand or so tombs in that soccer yard. She wandered around a field and randomly knelt down by one of the tombs. I look at the name of the tombs, and I check the date. It was the exact the same date while I was hostage. These victims were killed by this air striking. I kneel down on the ground and I pour the water. After I pour the water, I made a prayer in my style, and my Iraqi friends they are also making a prayer in their style. I was feeling my heart is beating so much, tuk tuk tuk, like this, because you know that my time was stopped. 
in 2004, I left my soul, my life in Iraq. So my clock started again. Big thanks to Nahoko Takato for sharing her story with the snap. Now, amazingly, in spite of it all, Nahoko continues to do her good work in Iraq and Jordan. She coordinates emergency relief aid for families who've lost their homes due to the ongoing violence. She's a straight hero of mine. I'm going to have a link to what she's up to at snapjudgment.org. The original score for that piece was by Davy Kim. It was produced by Davy Triple Threat Kim. Snap Judgment returns, one man has some serious, serious planning to do. When the Snap Judgment Leap of Faith episode continues, stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Leap of Faith episode. Today, we're talking to people who, for one reason or another, felt they had to dive off the cliff. And for our next story, please be advised because you may emerge with your mind blown. I did. Liz Mack spoke to Bob Snow. Let me tell you something. When I was commander of homicide, one of my biggest admonishments to all my detectives was do not get emotionally involved in your cases. If you get emotionally involved, you can't see things you need to see. But believe me, I was really emotionally involved in this case. Tell, tell me about how this all started. We're at that party. I don't remember what holiday it was. I was talking to a psychologist, Kathy Graben. I'd read a book about past life regression therapy, and I was talking to her about it. Past life regression therapy is when the psychologist or psychiatrist hypnotizes you and supposedly takes you back to a life you lived before your present one. I basically told her I thought it was just foolishness. I didn't realize that Kathy used past life regression, so I think I was being kind of obnoxious, putting it down so bad. And she gave me the name of a friend of hers, Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith, who did past life regression, and told me, try it yourself and see if you really still think it's so silly. I said, I'd do it. 
Well, actually, I, the next day I woke up and I was a little more clear-headed and sober, and I, I thought, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. But it seemed like from that day on, I ran to Kathy constantly. And when I'd see her, she'd always ask me, have you made the appointment yet? I got tired of making excuses every time I saw Kathy. So finally, I just decided, well, I'll, I'll do it. But I also decided I was going to take my own tape recorder along, record the session, so I could bring it back to Kathy and show her how silly it was. Being a police officer, you want evidence, you want proof before you make any claims. And so I basically made the appointment to go see Dr. Griffith to have a past life regression. Dr. Griffith's office was in kind of a dark, dingy building. I sat down on the couch, which was the most uncomfortable couch I think I'd ever sat on. Dr. Griffith, very nice lady, had a kind of a funny, kind of a musical, sing-songy type voice. So let's now and she told me, close your eyes, and we started talking. She said, okay, we're ready to go. She said, can you imagine a balloon? Now, I was sitting there, and there's a window to my right, and I could see a big purple circle. Of course, I knew it was just a light through the window at the right, to where I see a purple balloon. She said, okay, imagine yourself getting in the balloon and taking it up and going. I'm trying to imagine this for her. She said, land the balloon, tell me what you see. Well, I didn't see nothing. I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is her daydream, not mine. And nothing happened. And she kept saying, okay, land the balloon, tell me where you're at, what you see. We went through this at least a dozen times. And she finally said, there's 12 steps. We're going down to the valley and there's 12 steps. And she goes, 12, 12, 11, 11, 11. And each number is getting longer and slower and drawn out. 10. But when she reached one, something really bizarre happened, something really stunning. All of a sudden, I, I was in a valley. I don't think I, I mean, I just imagined I was in a valley or a daydream I was in a valley. I was in a valley. It was vividly clear. I could see the leaves on the trees. I could see the veins in the leaves. And I could feel a breeze in my face. So Dr. Griffith asked me, he says, look down and describe yourself to me. I looked down and I could see a pair of dirty, hairy legs. And I could see I was wearing dirty, matted fur. In my left hand, I was carrying a piece of a tree limb. I thought, well, obviously I'm a caveman. Between each episode, there used to be a light up high above you. She said, go into the light. Looked like the late 1800s because there were horse-drawn carriages and gas lights. And I could see it's an artist studio. And the room is just filled with dozens of paintings. At that moment, I was painting a portrait. It was the portrait of a hunchback woman. The hunch on her back was very, very prominent in the painting. And I was just putting the very, very last touches on it. And I told Dr. Griffith that I wanted to take one last look at one of my paintings. She says, tell me what you regret about this life. I told her I regretted it. We didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. But then right after I said it, the tape recorder I'd brought along clicked off. And I opened my eyes and that was it. The session was over. Is there anything particular that's going through your mind right then? You really have to think, what does this all mean? 
because I liked my life the way it was. My life was very grounded, very solid. I didn't want this other stuff. If I proved it, then it means everything I believed my whole life, my whole belief in how the universe works, is wrong. I'd have to completely stop, take back everything I ever believed in, throw it in the trash can, and bring in new beliefs. So, okay, what happens after this? Did you, do you see Kathy? I, I called Kathy on the phone and told her, I said, well, that I had seen some very interesting things. She was very gracious. I think she realized I didn't push her or anything. She said, thank you very much. Uh, but I think she could read between the lines. I was becoming obsessed about this. And let me tell you, as a police officer, I know when people have obs a really deep obsessions, it seldom turns out well. It was probably a month or so afterwards before I finally said, look, Bob, you, you got to do something about this. So my idea was I would go to Napa's Public Library. I would just start thumbing through their art books. By the way, this was in 1992. When you did research, you had to go down to the library and pull books off the shelf. And I figured it wouldn't take me long. Case closed. Go back to your life the way it was. Come on. How many portraits of hunchback women could there be? It took me several months to go have not only lunch hour, but weekends. And how many books did you go through? Hundreds, hundreds. Probably, oh, four or five hundred books at least. I went through every book that you know, a public library had. I went through all the books every each bookstore had. I went through probably a half dozen bookstores right in Annapolis. I went to a number of art galleries and talked to art dealers to see if I could find the paintings. And so I, I wasn't ready to give up yet. So finally, my, as a last end resort, I finally went back to Dr. Griffith for a second session. I thought maybe if I could go back and have her access the artist's life, I could find more information. And she took me back to several past lives who were very vivid, but they were, they were all so far back in history, you know, you couldn't decide whether anything was real or not real. But interestingly enough, every time she tried to take me to the artist's life, nothing would happen. And when it was over, I, I asked her why. And she says, you already know everything you need to know. All the evidence I had, I had followed it to its end, and it hadn't led anywhere. It basically, it was a cold case. So I hadn't told anyone. I thought there'll be an unsolved mystery I simply take to the grave with me. It was getting towards my wife and I's anniversary, so we decided to go to New Orleans. Our last day in New Orleans, I suggested we go window shopping in the French Quarter. And I noticed as we're walking down Royal Street, the galleries are getting smaller and the paintings much more obscure. So finally we get down to a gallery at the very end of Royal Street and there's a uh, portrait on an easel in the corner. And I walked by and give it a glance, and then I stopped like I'd went into a glass wall. And I spun around, and it was a portrait of the hunchback woman. I could still see every brushstroke, and it was identical. My heart was beating, I could feel electricity running out my arms and my stomach. Probably for four or five minutes, I just stood staring at the portrait. One of the uh, workers in the art gallery obviously saw me staring at a painting and thought, hot dog, here's a sale. So he came over to me and said, I bet you're thinking how nice I look over your fireplace, aren't you? So I asked him, I says, uh, I don't recognize the artist. I says, uh, who is the artist? So he said, hang on a second. So he walked over to his desk and come back and he had a little bio, probably a, oh, maybe five or six sentences. 
and it said J. Carol Beckwith, born 1852, died in 1917. So I started reading the biography and I found five different things that I had seen in the regression. So I asked the dealer, I said, I told him, I said, I've seen this painting somewhere before. I said, has it been an exhibition somewhere? He said, no. He said, this has been a private collection for years. But let me be honest with you. He said, Beckwith wasn't that good or that famous. He says, I should let this go pretty cheap. So so do you buy the painting? No, no. They wanted like $5,000 for it. My wife would have killed me. At that moment, Melanie came downstairs and we left. But I felt good. Now I had a name, date of birth, date of death. I could go back and I could reopen this. This case was no longer on the shelf. The next day, we were back in Indianapolis, so I went down to the public library, and I started researching on J. Carroll Beckwith. He simply was not that famous or that good. That kind of bugged me. I thought, wait a minute, how could I know these things about him if he's that well unknown? I happened onto a book, and at the very bottom of the page was a footnote that said, this information came from the diaries of James Carroll Beckwith that are kept on file at the National Academy of Design in New York City wrote a letter to him, basically asking him if, if they were available to look at. While I was waiting for the diary to come, I went through and listened to the tape of my regression. And I made a list of various things I had said, dates, places, causes of death, what have you, that could be proved, disproved. And I found I had 28 things. Now, what I was looking for at this point wasn't more proof about Beckwith. What I was looking for, I wanted to find one or two disproving things. For example, I had said we couldn't have children because my wife uh, couldn't have children. Now, if he had kids, then what? this is not true memories. This is not real. Why is it so important that you disproved that what happened in your regression is real? Why don't you just want to prove it? If I prove reincarnation is real, again, you have to throw away all your thoughts about how the universe works. And I'm certainly not going to do that unless I got some solid, solid evidence. So I thought, maybe I'll have my wife. I'll talk to her and see what she thinks about the whole idea. Maybe she can see something I didn't see. My wife thought I was nuts. She said, okay, hang on a second. She says, I'll tell you what, I'll look into this case. I'll find the information about Beckwith you didn't know was there. My wife was a, uh, a child abuse detective and a very excellent detective at that. She started looking into the case, and she started looking intently into it. And she didn't find a single thing, not a single thing I hadn't found, nothing. She told me very plainly, look, Bob, okay, forget about it. Don't tell nobody but me. Captains don't go talking about this. I thought that was probably probably solid advice. It really was. If I was to prove this or not, this would cause all kind of turmoil in my life as a police officer. Tremendous turmoil. But I couldn't let it go. I spent a year, I read every single page of Beckwith's diary. Every single page. There were over 17,000 pages of diary. And I found out that sure enough, his wife had had a very, very serious miscarriage, and after that, she couldn't have children. He talks about his mother being in church and having a stroke caused by a blood clot and dying. That he died in 1970, he drank wine. I saw myself die in a large city. He died in New York City. That is finding this proving fact. I kept finding one fact after another that agreed with what I had seen. Before I was done, I ended up proving all 28 facts, every single one. Every single thing I had said during aggression was right out of Beckwith's life. 
There is no doubt this case is solved. Do you believe in reincarnation now? Absolutely. I mean, how else do you explain it? How would I have Carol Beckwith's memories in my mind? Police officers always look for the simplest explanation because 99% of the time, it's the right one. The simplest explanation is that I carry Beckwith's memories in my mind. So, you know, how important is reputation when you are uh, the police commander? You're the backbone of the police department. And so your, your reputation as a, a police commander is very, very important. You want to have an image in the community of strength and stability and all. It could basically injure upward mobility in the police department. If you started talking about things that weren't really accepted as what a police captain should believe in. It seemed like too important a story to keep quiet. So many things happened. So much information came from so many unexpected sources. Believe me, my wife was really dead set against me doing this. She was positive it would damage my career. And she was right, as it turned out. What happens when you come out uh, to the public about what happened to you? I kept various publicity about it. And each time I do it, it would really upset the command staff more. Eventually, what happened is, even though I, well, the last year I was in homicide, we had an 83% clearance rate, and our murder rate was the lowest I've been in 20 years. They moved me out of there and put me on the citizen service desk where people come to get uh, photographed or get fingerprinted. So they put me in a dead-end job hoping I would retire. My career basically flatlined after that. Do you wish that you had never stepped into that hypnotist's office? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I've often thought that, which way I'd have been happier. But that's apparently that wasn't the point of my life. So the, the case is solved, right? So what did you do to mark the occasion? Well, I was in New York. I found out that, that Beckwith's scrapbooks were at the New York Historical Society. And I found out he was buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is up in Valhalla, New York. And I thought how cool it would be to visit my own grave. It was in August, but it was a very nice, pleasant day. It wasn't real hot. It's a huge, huge cemetery, and I walked away through it. It didn't even break out of sweat. But I didn't realize, I don't know why, but I don't think you're supposed to do this. As I got closer to the grave, my heart was just beating terrible fast. I was just running on sweat, and I could feel, you know, you have electricity was trembling out of my arms, not my fingertips. I started having a tremendous panic attack. I found some workers who were trimming some hedges close by, so I had them take a picture of me standing at the grave just to show everybody I wasn't scared. I was terrified. After that, I left. I can't worry about James Carroll Beckwith. You really can't live as other people. I mean, come on. I mean, you've already done that. You have to deal with the person you are in the present. I realized I had to simply go on with my life as Bob Snow. I went, got on a train, flew back to Naples, and went on with my life. Big thanks to Bob Snow for sharing this story. Now check out our website, snapjudgment.org for a link to Bob Snow's work. He's written about this experience and a whole bunch of true crime stuff that you do not want to miss. The original score for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Liz Mack. Now, 
and Snap Judgment returns. The most delicious thing any person has ever eaten at any time. Seriously. And we've got a friend of Snap Judgment, QD. That's his beat banging in the background. I'm going to take you out with Backpack Rock. And there's more storytelling goodness coming up right after the break. Stay tuned. WNYC. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Leap of Faith episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, we're talking about people forced to make choices with consequence. We're thrilled to feature Snap Judgment Classic. Hear it again for the very first time from Snap Judgment favorite Joel Ben Izzy. Snap Judgment. When I was 12, where I lived, which was the suburbs of the suburbs of the suburbs, it was streets after streets after streets leading to freeways, and I hated it. I was stuck taking buses, and as a kid growing up in L.A., cars were kind of sacred. Buses were for losers. They were hot, slow, greenhouses on wheels. I'm the only one riding the bus. That's the other thing. The buses are so bad, nobody rides them. And in protest, I decided I would sit in the seat reserved for elderly and handicapped. So there I was. And here comes a guy. He looks like he's about 100 years old. He's walking with a cane and says to the bus driver, How much is it? It's a quarter. 25 cents. Guy reaches in his pocket. 5, 10, 11, 12. That's it. I see my whole life passing before my eyes. It will be spent on this bus. Now, with a whole bus to sit on, he wants to sit where I am. So I move over to the side, I scoot over, and he sits. And he, he looks me up and down, and then he does an odd thing. He reaches into his shopping bag, and he pulls out an orange, which he holds up for me to look at. And finally he says, what do you think? And I look at the orange and say, I think it's an orange. He said, yes, it, it's an orange, but what do you think of it? Well, I took the orange and I looked at it, and of course, pretty much it's an orange. I looked at the orange for a long time, and he finally said, you don't understand, do you? He said, you know, I, I'm not from around here. Duh. He said, I, I came from Germany after the war. Did you study the war? I said, yeah, yeah, I learned about the war in, in school. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, did you learn about the place I came from? a place called Auschwitz. And I said, in fact, I, I actually read an article about it. There was a big sign over the front that said, work makes free. And he got very excited. He said, when you read the article, did they tell you it was black and white? And I said, uh, the pictures in the article were black and white, but the place wasn't black and white. He said, no, it was black and white. He said, what I mean is that the guards wore black, black uniforms with black shiny boots and you could look at your face and the reflection on the boots and you'd see a, a pale white face and there on the skin were numbers look he pulled up his sleeve and he said you see these numbers they're blue now but when they burned them in they were black 
Everything was black, white, gray. The fence was black, the sky was gray, the snow would fall. One day it would be white, the next day the ashes from the smokestacks would turn it gray. But what I most remember was the food was gray. In a big barrel they would cook maybe eight or nine potatoes and boil them till they dissolved. And you'd get one bowl of this each day, the black metal bowl. And if you got a piece of potato, you were lucky. So this was what we did. We worked. We waited for our gray soup and tried to stay warm. Now to stay warm, I would look for paper. I could stuff the paper in my shoes or put it inside my black and white paper uniform to stay warm. And it was one day I was looking near the fence and, and what did I see? There was a piece of paper, like newspaper. I lifted the paper up and there in the center was something that I saw and I, I had to stare at because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe what it was. Well, I reached down and I grabbed it and I hid it. And you have to understand what a treasure this was. If someone had seen me, they would have killed me just to take it. I hid this orange inside my clothes and in the barracks I hid it in a crack in the wall. That night while everyone slept I took it out and I held it in my, my hands and you have to understand how hungry I was. I had eaten nothing but potato water for six months. I wanted to eat that orange like you would eat an apple but I knew that if I did I, I would have nothing. So instead I I rolled it between my hands. I took my fingernail and I scratched at that orange and I smelled it. As I smelled that orange, I was not in Auschwitz anymore. I was in the land called Palestine. My cousin had moved there before the war and he had written, here we grow oranges. And the smell of these oranges fills the air. It's the smell of freedom. For the moment I smelled that, I was free. I opened my eyes. I, I was back in Auschwitz. I, I couldn't eat the orange. I put it back. And the next night I took it out again. And again scratched it and again smelled it. And I told myself I wouldn't eat it until after a, a very bad day. Well, you didn't have to wait long in Auschwitz for a bad day. Came a few days later a selection. A guard stood at the front of a long line. He had a gun with a bayonet on the end. He would stare at the person in front of line and he would point right or left. Those sent to the left went to the showers and they never returned. Those to the right went back to the barracks. He looked at me, said right. That night, I gathered those around me in the barracks, and they said, I have something. And I brought it out for them. And each one looked at it as I had, because you see, they had forgotten the color. And we passed it around. Each one rolled it in their hands. And finally, when it came back to me, I, I peeled it. And they gave each person a section. I closed my eyes, and I ate mine, and I will tell you, nothing, nothing before or since has tasted so sweet. It was the taste of, of freedom, it was the taste of hope. 
I gathered up the peels and I kept them and I took them out to smell each night to remind me of freedom. Before long came spring. Finally, the snow melted, and there, through the cracks in the cement, plants came up. Tiny green plants to the guards, they were weeds. To us, they were color. Eventually, the war ended, and I came here. But you see that orange, it, it saved my life. With that, the bus stopped. He got up, and he said, Young man, remember the sweet things in life. Find out more about the world of Joel and Izzy at storypage.com. The original sound design for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Stephanie Fu. Yep, it's about that time. But Glenn, I need more. I need more storytelling in my life. Well, I feel you. And that's why I will never leave you alone, Snappers. I won't. Several full episodes are there for the asking, including the never-released on the radio Snap Judgment Twilight Special and the Student and the Teacher Special. Just subscribe to the Snap Podcast at snapjudgment.org. Dig it on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on SoundCloud. Get it now before the man finds out and we have to take it back. Snap Judgment was produced by the team that takes a leap of faith each and every week. Please say hello to the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Our resident beat master, Pat McCedie Miller. Anna, The Grill, Sussman, Davey, Hot Sauce, Kim, Nancy, Propane Lopez, Joe, Aluminum Foil, Rosenberg, The Meat Thermometer, Renzo Gorio, Tail, Vegan Pork Ribs, Ducat, Eliza, Potato Salad, Smith, Leon, Watermelon Morimoto, Firecracker, Jasmine Aguilera. Perhaps you've heard that this is not the news. I can't emphasize it enough. This is not the news. In fact, you can run up to the bar, check out the finest honey in the place, tell them, baby, baby, I've seen you in a past life painting. Have that other person tell you exactly where to stick your corny line and you would still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is WNYC. <laughs>